And if you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41, we'll read starting in verse 37 through the end of the chapter. Lend your attention, this is the word of God. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set over him all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of those seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew. We come to verses 14 through 17. We've mentioned that the structure of Chapters 8 and 9 are a series of miracles um, grouped in threes. We've mentioned before, Matthew has an affinity for threes. Uh, there are 
three groups of three miracles or three miracle situations, and separating them are discussions about the life of discipleship. And so we come to the last of the first three miracles, starting in verse 14. This is God's word. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Uh, Join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing. Father, you have revealed yourself in the Son to be the great physician. Your word uh, tells us that there is an illness uh, deeper than any flu or fever. Uh, It is the illness of sin. We rejoice that there is one who can make well, Lord, in the face of such a deadly illness. And we rejoice that you have not left us over uh, to the dreadful, inevitable course of the sickness of sin. So we pray that as we come face to face through the eyes of faith with this king with healing hands, that our hearts would be encouraged uh, that this is our king. Our Father, if there are some who know him not, uh, that today would be the day that you make them acquainted with the one who is like no other, uh, the one who excels Joseph, and the one who is better than David. Indeed, the best of men are but a pale shadow of this most wonderful king. Help us to see him, Lord. Help us to love him. We ask in Christ's name, amen. In the novel Kristen Lavrensdata, the Black Plague comes to Norway. This is a, r- a real plague. I mean, if you've read accounts of this, you know that this was no joke. Um, and so it's not surprising that in the novel you see that as the plague spreads, fear spreads. We know something of this, don't we? I assure you what they experienced was worse than what we experienced. Um, But there are some similarities. As As a plague spreads, fear spreads, and people begin to go mad. Uh, There's a certain madness that is the product of fear. Isn't it? Fear working despair, and despair causes people to do all sorts of strange things. And that's what you see in the novel. People are turning to strange things. Some are turning to debauchery, and that's fairly common, very simple. Fear leads to despair. Despair leads to debauchery. But there are others who turn to pagan practices. 
fear drives you mad and you're willing to go anywhere where you think there might be some relief, some help. And there's a scene where Kristen and other servants of the church who in the face of this spreading plague turn to service, tending to the sick, burying the dead. And in this powerful scene, she and her friends come upon a group of men gone mad. They're attempting to sacrifice a child in a graveyard, thinking that this will ward off this plague from this town. And she is an older woman now, and she rebukes these men in a maternal authority, reminiscent of Proverbs. And they, fools, reminiscent of the one found in Proverbs, threaten this godly mother. And in the course of threatening her, she learns that there is a woman who's died of the plague in a shack unattended. And a display of otherworldly courage, attended by her dear and noble friend, they run to retrieve the body and give that body a Christian burial. The courage of this woman and her friend is striking, especially compared to the cruel cowardice driven by fear of the men in the graveyard. What's the source of that courage? This isn't a fictitious episode. This is played out in the life of the church time and time again. If there is courage to be found willing to hazard life and limb for the benefit of others in the face of the threat of personal harm, where is it to be found? It's to be found in the church, beloved. And the reason it's found in the church is because the church serves the king who is lord over such things. Who has an authority over sickness, an authority over death. As one who's conquered sickness, who conquers death, such that if any of his servants fall sick or die, the servants rightfully conclude, this is from his hand, for he possesses all authority, and he is good. So even such can be born with courage. Thus you've seen time and time again, if sickness and death sit upon the path of righteousness, the servants of this king need not fear. It doesn't mean we don't, but we need not. We meet here the source of this courage, don't we? Such a simple, lovely exchange. Most commentators brush right past this. It's so short. It's such a short episode. They give some sort of natural explanation for why it's included. It's like, well, Peter was one of the founders of the church, and so his mother-in-law was the recipient of this miracle, and so it just got recorded. It's remarkable, it's lovely, but there's really not much to it. There's much that is lovely about this that's easy to miss, not the least of which is that we're reminded that truly all, all, all authority, all power, all power belongs to this one. Nothing falls outside of that scope. Whether demon possession or fever, it all is under his authority. That's plain here. 
But not only that, we meet the one who's gathering followers, who's gathering servants, who bathed in a certainty that this is the one that they serve, evidence a courage in the face of a world that is still riddled by sickness and worse besides, beloved. Make no mistake. It's only as we encounter Christ as the fountain of mercy and power that we are empowered unto courageous service in the name of our Lord. In the face of that which is truly frightening, beloved, whether in the form of sickness or darkness of power which exceeds comprehension. That's what we see on display in this short episode. Whatever threatens us at first blush is no real threat for those who belong to the king with all authority. So let's consider this morning that Jesus comes to us in mercy and power. Second, we serve Christ with the life that he gives us. And third, Jesus heals our homes and makes them centers of light in this sad world. First, Jesus comes to us. That's how it starts. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law. He touched her hand. It's just a striking, simple sequence of verbs. Jesus is the actor. <laughs> this is so brief. It's so straightforward. We can compare these to the first two miracles that we've already encountered, the cleansing of the leper and the healing of the centurion's servant. Some of the differences are striking in Siddet, the significance of the heart of this passage. Notice that now we're in a house. We're in Peter's house. The first two were in public. There were mass crowds around. He was on the road. He was traveling. These were public displays. Here it's a private display. We're led to believe that there's really no one other than Jesus and this woman in the room. At least that's how Matthew presents it here. Notice how in the first two there was a dialogue that people speak. The leper comes, he speaks, Jesus responds. The centurion comes, he speaks at length, and Jesus responds at length. This is a silent scene. There's no words exchanged. Nobody speaks in this. And related to that, there's no mention of faith here. That's striking considering how much faith featured prominently in the first two. There's a confession of faith there's an acting in faith in both the leper's case and the centurion's case. Faith drives them to seek Jesus. They've either heard him teach and they think, wow, if he teaches like this, there's really nothing as a true prophet that's beyond him. Remember Elijah? Remember Elisha? They spoke like none spoke and they had a th an authority which verified that they were servants of the Lord. This one is a greater Elijah, a greater Elisha. I bet he can heal. So they respond in faith. Or the report about his healings went out and they respond in faith. Hear nothing. No faith is mentioned. This woman is incapacitated. Perhaps she's in the delusions of a fever. 
Some of you experience this, the delirium of fever. Your mind's not right. Your wits aren't about you. You, know, you ever had fever dreams? Those are some of the strangest dreams. It just doesn't make sense. There's a certain madness that settles in, in a fever. There's no faith driving this woman to seek Christ. She can't seek Christ. She's incapacitated by her illness. And that perhaps is the most striking difference of all. Beloved, we say truly that you must come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ and live. I'll say that again and again and again because it's the plain picture that Scripture sets forth. Come to Christ and live. Christ says, anyone who comes to me, I'm not going to cast him out. But what if there's a deeper reality as well? What if you can't left to your own native capacity? What then? If we say that all those who seek Christ in faith will find him, we must also say that none would seek him left to themselves. And it's in this light that Christ sets himself forth as the great physician. What is he going to say later on? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick who need a doctor. And then what does he say next? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In the truest sense of the word, beloved, there are no seekers except one. The one who has come to seek and to save the lost. Isn't that what Paul teaches? in this blurring of physical and spiritual realities that come to us in Ephesians chapter 2? You were dead, physical reality, in your trespasses and sins, moral, spiritual reality, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's worse than sickness, it's death. It's not even that there's a glimmer of life. But it's not just that, it's also haunting. The spiritual reality is plainly set forth, like what's animating us in our state apart from Christ. It's the breath of hell. Like however you want to put it in a vivid manner, Paul puts it similarly in Ephesians 2. He blurs the line here, even in Matthew's account, sick, possessed. There's this line that's blurred between sickness and haunted. None in this state seek, beloved. That's the point. If at one level we say, come to Christ and be saved, at another level we have to say, if you have come to Christ, then you've been made a recipient of Christ's mercy. You don't have to pit these two things against each other. That would be a wrong reading of Matthew. Is he leading us here to think that, well, some people seek Christ? You know, those who maybe got it a little bit more together, they come to Christ, they do most of it, and then he gives them that little extra. But then there's these other people who are really bad whom Christ has to seek. That's not what Matthew's teaching here. Matthew is teaching that these are all legitimate layers to every single person who has come to Christ. 
If you have come in faith to Christ, it means that he has already come to you in grace. That's what Paul says. You were dead in your trespasses. And then he concludes, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Beloved, that is true for everyone who believes. For everyone who believes. The bedrock of your Christian life is the mercy of God, beloved. Isn't that what he says? Somebody tell me how he says something different there. You were dead. You were haunted. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. You can't state the matter any plainer, beloved. You brought nothing to the table. You were on the wrong team. You were his enemy. You were playing for the devil. Every single one of you. That's what he, he can't present the lost estate any plainer. Everyone apart from Christ, everyone before they receive grace is in this estate apart from the mercy of God. That's the bedrock of your life. It remains the bedrock of your life. It remains, the it remains the bedrock of your life. Mark this well, because God's people got this wrong a lot. They think that just because they've been on the right team for a while, somehow the bedrock has changed. And they grow arrogant. They grow proud. Isn't that the sad story of Jonah? embodying Israel, but that Paul warns us of? Any number of places. Romans 11, 1 Corinthians 10, all sorts of places. Don't go proud, beloved. This demolishes pride. It glimpses beneath the reality that, yes, you came in saving faith. It glimpses beneath that to see that you've been retrieved from death. And that the faith that you possess itself is a gift. Why? 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 Paul tells us, so that no one may boast. And yet we are constantly boasting. We're constantly posturing ourselves in pride towards one another. You don't have it together. I have it together. You're lousy. I'm better. We're doing that all the time in our heart of hearts, aren't we? Shoo, you know you are. Good grief. I can see right through you. Why? Because I know your heart. It's on these pages. Your heart is in my heart, and I know my heart. He's designed salvation to exclude boasting. So if there's any room for boasting, it's constructed by our delusions, beloved. 
and it does great harm. But mark the assurance that comes to us from such passages like this. Did you hear what he said? Why did he save me? Why did he save me? I hope that question still haunts you. Why did he save me? Oh, he knew I was going to do great things for the Lord. (laughs) He knew I had an eloquence, the likes of which just had to be employed in the kingdom. (laughs) (laughs) Who else was going to teach you guys about Tolstoy? (laughs) No, none of that. Why did he save me? Why did he save you? He's rich in mercy and the greatness of his love. There's nothing to be found in you, beloved. It's not foreseen faith. It's nothing wrought in you or done by you, but purely because of his good pleasure. If you've lost awe at that, beloved, you're losing sight of the wonder of the gospel. It isn't that we were just about there and he nudged us over the finish line. It's that we were in the heart of the sea with no hope of life and he retrieved us in a staggering condescension of mercy, beloved. Stand in awe. This is our king. And so it's no wonder then that she devotes herself seeing rightly to the humility of service in Christ. That's what she goes. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. Now, on just a mundane level, we can mark how this very clearly verifies that this was a miracle. I don't know if you've ever recovered from sickness before. It takes some time. And she is not a spring chicken. <laughs> She's a mother-in-law. She's at least, I don't know what, do some quick math. Peter's probably like 30. So she was like 50, I don't know, in her 50s, maybe. Like people weren't super healthy back then. Life expectancy was lower. She wasn't recovering out of the native vitality that her body possessed. Recovery takes time. She got up immediately. She was in the throes of sickness. Christ touched her, and she is in the fullness of life. This is a miracle, beloved. This is something which takes place only at the hand of Christ. And we can go on to ask, and it's probably right to ask, does Christ still do this? Does he still heal miraculously? We see in Scripture that these miracles really punctuated periods of time, the time of Christ and the time of the apostles. If you take a big picture view of Scripture, you realize God really wasn't working miracles all that often in the biblical history. There's really only a handful of times which are punctuated by this truly miraculous, I mean, you know, not ambiguous at all. He's dead, now he's alive. Why? Because the prophet was here. Like, there's not really much room for gray in that. It really only takes place in just a couple of periods in biblical history. The climax of all of them is very clearly the Lord Jesus Christ and the time of the apostles. But even as the apostolic age waned, we see that things are kind of going back to this more natural way of things. Paul can write 
to Timothy. So, hey, take, take a little wine for your stomach. He said, I know you're sick. Um, use what we know to be helpful for sickness in that. And Timothy's like, why don't you come, lay your hands on me, and I will be healed. He doesn't say that. <laughs> so already we realize that the miraculous is serving a purpose here, and the purpose here is not to be missed. It's not that he was Lord of sickness and death, and now he ceases to be. He still is, even though that lordship is exercised through providence. Such that when we fall sick, it's not as if we're like, well, who's in charge? Like, how did this this happen? It's no, all things under his authority serve his purposes. That's the takeaway here. This wasn't true for a period in terms of his authority, even though that authority is now exercised differently. Do you see? He's still in charge, beloved. He's still with us in our sicknesses. And that's the lovely part of how this episode closes. This was to fill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses. He bore our diseases. The loveliness of Christ with us at our most vulnerable. He didn't remain afar. We sang this morning in Psalm 138, you're exalted above the highest heaven. It's inconceivable how far above us your throne is. And yet you're with the lowly and the meek. It's like for a while that was intention. It's like how can both those things be true in their fullest sense? And then Christ appears on the scene and he appears at the bedside of a sick elderly woman and he touches her hand and he's with her. We would be mistaken if we saw that as a wonder for then. The takeaway is, is in your vulnerable moments, in your fevers, in your deliriums, in your weakness, when sin even seems to be getting the best of you, he's with you, beloved. He's the source of strength. He's the source of hope. He's the source of light. He's the source of life in the face of all iterations of life in this fallen world. Can we hear that and see that in this magnificent picture? That's not all we see here. We also see the purpose for which he restores us to life. And that's service. And she rose and began to serve him. It's hard for us. We read the Bible like autonomous Americans. Like, every, everything I have is at my disposal. Like, I, I get to determine, like, what I do with everything, including my life. I mean, there's a, just a natural sense in which her service of him just overflows out of thanksgiving, right? I mean, she experienced being on death's doorstep, being retrieved from the gates of Sheol, just like the psalmists, <laughs> and being established once more in the land of the living. So there's a sense in which she's just like, thank you. Like, what, uh, is there anything I can get you? <laughs> any, any, anything. Thank you. And there is a sense in which our lives are just overflows of 
gratitude when we glimpse clearly the life that he's restored to us. Anyone who's been brought from death, tyranny under the devil, to life, service of the king which excels Arthur, has a lot to be thankful for. A lot to be thankful for. Right? But there's also a greater sense in which Christ owns her. I mean, he literally gave her that life. It's his. There's that movement in redemption that we forget. We think like freedom means unlimited options that are now at my disposal. Right? You're free to go and do what you want, like I've given you your life. Make sure you don't waste it. It's like, well, that's not the biblical model of redemption. Like, think about the historical scene of redemption in the Exodus. The Lord didn't deliver Israel from bondage, oppression, I mean, death itself, and then bring them to this realm of neutrality, be like, well, like, got her, go, just go. (laughs) Go do something good. He brought them out of redemption, brought them out of Egypt by redemption, into service of himself. The life that he gives finds its completion in loving service of the one who gave it. That's what redemption is, beloved. You belong to another. Isn't that what we've been rehearsing in the evening service with 1 Corinthians 6? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. That's redemption language. So glorify God in your bodies. You hear a lot of this sort of thinking and talk about those who are looking for work. I was struck by this. I was talking to a friend, and he was talking to his son about what profession he should pursue, and they were going through just his skills and his abilities and his delights, and what undergirds that whole evaluation is, is, you know, you, you were made a certain way, and there's going to be a particular satisfaction that comes when you do the thing that you were made to do, right? Does that make sense? I remember a friend in high school, he was like, I was made to play football. He, like, he, and he went out, he played in the NFL. Like he, he was, that's right. Like it seems as if that was right. You hear uh, Eric Liddell, right? When, when I run, God smiles. Like when I run, I feel God smile. He made me a certain way. And when I exercise that gift, like there's just this resonance of my heart delighting in his work. Beloved, we were made to serve God. We were made to serve God. Now, if that has any negative baggage to us, it's not because it's bad. It's because our hearts are relentlessly thirsting after being God, beloved. We were made to serve God. And the loveliness of it comes forth so plainly here. Clearly, he's good. This one who came uninvited, who saw iteration of misery, who touched and relieved the burden of this woman in a private room. He's clearly good, beloved. He's clearly worthy. 
And when we consider that this one who came into this room and discharged this miracle is none other than the eternal son, the exact image of the father, Don't your hearts just burn to serve this one? Consider all the things we give our lives to. You have to make some qualification about the worthiness of all of them. His worth needs no qualification. He is worthy of everything that you have down to your very life. And what's so striking is that he brings her into discipleship of himself and he begins to make her look like him. Not only is Christ the great physician who came to seek and to save the lost, what else do we learn about Christ from the Gospel of Matthew? Staggeringly, we learn that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve she starts to look like her king, and the astonishing thing is that her king looks like this. What she does on a small scale, he came to do on a far greater scale at far greater cost, beloved. Isn't that what the suffering servant song in Isaiah highlights for us? That this one chosen by God, the one in whom his soul delights, came not to be served, but to lay down his life, to bear our sin, to enter into our suffering, to redeem and to overcome for good the entire mess that we've made. She looks like him as she starts to serve, beloved. He gives life. We serve him because he's making us look like himself. And what happens when that takes place? When the servant king is exalted and servant followers are being fashioned, home is healed. That's what happens. He heals this home. He doesn't just heal this woman. He heals this home. It's striking. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This home which was formerly characterized by an illness in its interdepths is now transformed and is made a center of life. Where not just the acceptably sick are brought. Think about this. This is your home. We don't like when people knock on our doors unannounced. This is not a savory cast of characters who all of a sudden shows up at our door. This isn't Al down the street who helps me when my snowblower breaks. They bring to him the demon-possessed. Where? In Peter's home. They're bringing him that which is frightening. It's funny, we're probably more scared of the sick part. They're like, I don't want to get sick. But the demons are scarier. Like, we just don't believe. Like, that's the thing. We're just like, no, if it's not visible, it's not real. It's like, no, it's real. It's real. It's terrifying. 
So we're like, I don't want to get sick. We've lived like our last three lives being like, get away from me. Don't get me sick. That's how I love you. It was the most convenient myth that America was ever fed. The way that I love you is by staying as far away from you as possible. That's what I wanted the whole time. Thank you. <laughs> Just to keep away from you people. <laughs> they bring sickness into the home. They bring spiritually dark people into the home. Why? Because Christ is Lord there and nothing is scary anymore. If you belong to this king, everything becomes weatherable. Well, you think this is just like an interesting narrative report here? That, like, yeah, then they brought the sick and the demon-possessed into his house that night. No. The only other place in Scripture where the mother-in-law is mentioned, not Scripture, in Matthew's Gospel, the only other place in Matthew's Gospel where mother-in-law is mentioned is Matthew 10. Mother-in-law is a rare word. It's, only, it's two times in Matthew's Gospel. Mother-in-law here. I went looking. I'm like, there's got to be something significant to the mother-in-law. There might be something with Ruth. The most famous mother-in-law in all of the Bible is Naomi. I couldn't figure it out. I wrestled with it. I'm like, how does this relate to the Ruth thing? but I couldn't figure it out. So if you figure something out, you let me know. Because mother-in-law occurs in Ruth like, I don't know, a dozen times, and that's it in the Old Testament. So it's got to be something. Put that aside. <laughs> the only other place where mother-in-law appears in Matthew's gospel is in Matthew 10, where Jesus says the gospel is going to come and it's going to divide households. That mother-in-law is going to be set against daughter-in-law. That the gospel and the allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ is going to tear the most basic fabric of allegiance in our families. We know that to be true. Some of you have experienced that. And it's dreadful. That following Christ is the dividing line. But if that's one story on what the gospel does to households, don't miss this other story. Here, the gospel heals this house. Heal, here, the gospel uses this house. And it becomes a center of light and life in a dark place. That's incredibly encouraging, isn't it? Both narratives have to be heard. This is what we see in Acts. Think of the Philippian jailer. He falls on his face before Silas and Paul. What must I do to be saved? Believe, be baptized, you and your household. The reality of Christ had come to that household. A different world opened up in his household. As Christ is followed in that household, as the reality of sin is set forth in our homes, as the reality of Christ as the forgiveness of sin is set forth in our homes, as the reality of service unto Christ, as the reality of self-giving love unto others is set forth in our home. Beloved, something truly different takes place in a world that is passing away. Can you see it? Do you see it? I hope you see it. But the fact that it's Peter's household also seems to be significant to me. For Peter and God's purposes did sit near the heart of him building his church. The first century churches were all house churches, beloved. The kingdom of God broke into households because that's where the church gathered. There's something encouraging about that, I think. 
I imagine first century naysayers would have come to them and been like, why don't you meet in the pagan temples? Like we've got kind of this big song and dance going on. You just meet in a house. Like nothing real happens there. Or even the synagogue. Came along, like The synagogue is the official meeting place. Like nothing real happens in the house. You're just a bunch of outsiders make-believing that you're communing with the true and living God. I mean, think about that. Right? You're convinced that heaven broke in in Peter's living room. <laughs> it's a reminder that the place is irrelevant, beloved. That it's the person, the proclamation of the person. That's where the kingdom of God is. That's where the rule and the reign in grace is being established. Wherever Christ is lawfully preached, beloved. I don't care if it's a beautiful building or an ugly building. I don't care if it's a house or a field. If God's word, Christ's gospel, the sacraments and true discipline is taking place. Beloved, make no mistake. It's a colony of heaven. It is something new taking place in a world that is fading away. And that's encouraging for us. I think that there is this pull that a lot of us feel towards that which is big and beautiful and official. It's like, oh, like that looks shiny over there. I bet that's where the real stuff is happening. Like all, all those bells and those whistles and that smoke and those gowns and those icons, like, oh, oh, oh. The only place there's life is where there's truth, beloved, and it doesn't matter where truth is. If Christ is proclaimed, the sacraments are administered, well, you can take that show on the road, and sometimes you have to. Sometimes you've got to flee. Sometimes you've got to meet in a field. Sometimes there's only a handful of people that you can scrounge up because the whole place is under persecution or famine or some other calamity to which we are subject as those who belong to the one who's Lord over all of it and who continues to assure us that he's with us in the midst of it and that whatever the face of it, be it illness, sickness, demon possession, the movement of mountains into the heart of the sea or some other nightmarish calamity, we need not fear. Why? Because he's with us, beloved. And he assures us that through his word and his sacrament. Can you hear that? Can you hear the wellspring of strength and life that comes to us through that? I hope you can. It seems like scary things are on the horizon. Mm. Let's pray. Mm. <laughs> Sanctify us, O Lord, by your word. Your word is truth. Teach us to marvel at the great physician. who heals, who seeks, who saves. Teach us to marvel at your mercy, O Lord, that we may abound in mercy towards others in true reflection of our King and our God. Encourage us, O Lord, with your promises. Sustain us on whatever path your providence puts before us, O Lord. We ask in Christ's name, amen.